You're listening to At Large, a global affairs podcast brought to you by China U.S. Focus. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, James Chow. Death approaches when you least expect it. I was heading out on Saturday evening when I received a call from a television station asking me for a comment on the death of Kofi Annan, and that's how I found out he had died. Even though he was 80 years old, Kofi Annan was to me a person who I thought had many more years ahead of him, and he was young compared to Nelson Mandela, who was 95 when he passed away. Kofi Annan will always be to me a figure who. Died before his time because even though he had accomplished so much in his public life, he had yet more to complete. If only because we live in a world and at a time when we require not just elected politicians but state figures who exercise real and effective moral leadership. And for that reason alone, I think he will be deeply, deeply missed. I, Kofi Annan. I, Kofi Annan. Solemnly swear, solemnly swear, to exercise in all loyalty, to exercise in all loyalty, discretion and conscience, discretion and conscience, the functions entrusted to me, the functions entrusted to me, as Secretary General of the United Nations, as Secretary General of the United Nations. I gave a couple of media interviews on Saturday, and they all asked me what his personal legacy would be. For that, I reverted to some personal memories because I had the immense honour of interacting with Mr. Nunn on occasion, starting in 2011 when I first became involved with the One Young World Youth Summit. He always believed in young people, and for that reason, he was one of the three central figures who led this conference every year. It was Bob Geldof, Mohammed Yunus, and his fellow Nobel Peace Prize winner Kofi Annan. And on one occasion, I interviewed him in Bangkok in 2015. It was right before the Paris climate change talks, and right after the terrorist attacks in Paris. Uh, that had killed so many people, and in such a violent way. For that reason, it placed a new urgency in what we were discussing—not just how to save the planet, but how to save humanity from ourselves. Mr. Anand, you're a world leader. Will your peers at COP21 be reminded of the fragility of life and act on that for climate change in a way they've never done before? They—they they have an opportunity. They have an opportunity, and they should seize the moment and show leadership, and tell young and future generations that this is a group of leaders who did not miss the opportunity to help halt the、uh, the damage that climate change is doing to our planet, and that they exercise leadership, they stuck their necks out, and they took the right decisions. And that we will walk away from Paris with an agreement that is fair, equitable, and hopefully binding. This is At Large, your weekly podcast on China, the U.S., and the world. Keep listening. Well, trade negotiators from the U.S. and China will be gathering again. On the surface, it's a lower-level representation compared to the last round. Though, of course, the last round didn't. 
produce the progress that many were hoping for. And of course, there was the surprise of more tariffs announced just before those talks began. But I worry about the gaps of knowledge uh, and opinions that the two sides walk in with, one of them being how open a market China is to American businesses. Um, Do you know how many American businesses operate in China today? Well, here's the figure. 68,000 American companies are manufacturing, distributing and selling goods in China. And that, of course, directly challenges the belief that the Chinese market is close to the US, when in fact, according to figures from Deutsche Bank, China's subsidiaries belonging to these 68,000 American businesses sold $223 billion worth of goods in the year 2015 alone. This $223 billion figure is not included in the US-China trade deficit. In numbers, when we talk about the trade deficit, what has come to be the universally accepted figure is $335 billion, the gap between US imports and the value of its exports. But is that figure actually correct? There's been a report in the Wall Street Journal that suggests the deficit might only be half of that. They use the iPhone as one example, explaining that the components that make up an iPhone come from many different countries, including but not only China. And because it's assembled in China, the entire manufacturing price is packed into what is called an export value. I looked at my iPhone right before I sat down to record this podcast. And on the back, you're going to see these words, designed by Apple in California, period, assembled in China, period. Now, this wording allows Apple to lower its tax bill, but it exaggerates how much is going to China. Uh, The Hong Kong economist Lawrence Lau agrees that there is a Chinese trade surplus. For 2015, he calculates the surplus at $132 billion, not the $367 billion that's quoted for that year. And that's based on the value added on exported goods and services of China and the United States. It brought back to mind an earlier interview this year with Larry Summers, who of course was the US Treasury Secretary. And in this interview, he really talks about where the focus should be. And the focus, he said, of these trade talks should not be getting distracted by what China is doing. This is what he said in his own words. I think the United States has a lot that it can do. In general, I think the American strategy should be to pick the United States up, not to hold China uh, down. Uh, How do we do that? There are many steps, increasing our infrastructure investment, increasing our commitment to basic science, making investments in uh, increasing hiring through appropriate wage subsidies in the most depressed parts of our country, investing in our system of providing human capital, and particularly community college uh, education uh, for all of our uh, citizens. These are among the steps that I think would push our economy forward. I've been looking through what's being said in U.S. media this week, and there was a great opinion piece called China's Challenge is America's Opportunity by Dr. Raphael Reif, who is the president of uh, MIT. And it's a very comprehensive piece. He talks about China as an innovation leader. And he gives many examples in 5G technology, where Huawei is up there with Nokia and Ericsson, uh, Alibaba, led by Jack Ma, up head-to-head with Google 
in quantum supremacy. Um, bullet trains designed and built in China is another example. He writes about mobile payment, facial and spoken language recognition, algorithms, biotech, and also space. And he wraps up this article, if I scroll down even further, by saying that the US government should take a number of steps forward, one of them being a fresh look at industry university government partnerships, also the development of homegrown talent at every age and in all communities around the US. And also, he says, we should make sure that we have an immigration system that welcomes the best talent from anywhere in the world so that people hungry for opportunity continue to see America as the best place for their education and the best place to spend their lives and careers, thereby enabling the United States to reap the benefit of their creativity and drive. I think we need to think about that. And that, again, is what negotiators may choose to or not choose to remember when they sit down at the table, that you need a longer term vision that's going to go uh, beyond the next couple of months or beyond maybe even how they're thinking this particular round of trade talks. Let's go back to Mark Ross from Caracol Global because he talks about the long-term vision, but he also talks about how this trade war in itself could be at least a medium-term reality. I do think going into this election season, certainly here in the U.S., you'll see a lot more engagement, not only from farmers, but also from businesses getting involved in elections, making the case that these tariffs aren't the right approach to solving kind of global trade frictions, if you will. And even if there is a short-term resolution in the 2018 election, there's no doubt that this, this issue is going to go into 2020. So in some situations, this is a two- to three-year problem, which I'm sure uh, a lot of politicians don't really want to address. But in the short term, these tariffs are only creating long-term problems, and how we get out of here is going to be the biggest problem. If we think about it, September, October, November, three months is quite a long time in terms of political space. And a lot can happen, as we know, uh, week by week in the bilateral relationship. Without a doubt, we're going to keep on this trade war, uh, particularly as the negotiators get together in the US to see whether any progress can be made. And it's going to be keenly watched, not just by people involved and concerned in the US and in China, but I think also by people around the world, as is evidenced by what Ross says about the impact it's going to have on the US midterm elections. You've been listening to At Large with James Chow. For more episodes, you can go to ChinaUSFocus.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe at Google Play Music, SoundCloud and more. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for tuning in.